morning. Turn with me this morning again to Acts chapter 2. As has a couple, happens a couple of times a year, uh, allergies have taken half of my voice, so bear with me. We'll see how that goes. Let's read together uh, in God's Word. Here we've begun a series through uh, the book of Acts just uh, several weeks ago, and we've come to uh, the first 13 verses of chapter 2 we'll read this morning. So hear God's holy word. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each, we each hear them in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. We've, uh, in our adult class, Sunday mornings, been studying the 19th century. And uh, there's a phenomenon among settlers of the western United States, the prairie and the prairie of Canada as well, uh, that was called prairie fever in that time, or sometimes prairie madness. And it, was, it rose from the extreme loneliness and isolation, especially that the women experienced uh, in settling the prairie. Uh, before there were a lot of established towns or churches or schools um, and it was, it was marked by deep and prolonged depression and significant suicide. Um, it's not hard to imagine how hard that would have been to be so extremely isolated uh, in a new venture. Uh, but that, that prairie fever disappeared then almost entirely with uh, the development of towns and churches and schools and the invention of cars and uh, the telephone and so on into the 20th century. Well, today, by contrast, we're nothing if not very connected. I was reading recently the average American, uh, maybe sadly, sends and receives 85 text messages a day. Uh, We have, uh, on average, apparently 20 personal interactions per day. Uh, The average American speaks 10,000 words per day. Now, that's that's an average taken from the women's average and the men's average. Um, (laughs) Seriously. But the point is, we're connected. Uh, It would seem impossible generally for people to feel isolated and lonely uh, in in such a society. But increasingly, uh, that's what's happening. Psychologists, sociologists are are raising the alarm about an epidemic of loneliness. Um, A recent Harvard survey reported that nearly two-thirds, two-thirds of young adults Uh, reported being seriously lonely. That was the highest category uh, in the survey. 
Uh, probably most of us have at some point struggled with, with something along those lines. In, in a fallen world, there are many reasons to feel isolated or lonely or disconnected from purpose. And, and I want you to think about the baby church here that we've been studying uh, in Acts chapter 1. We've, we've seen them faithfully gathering and praying and preparing for God's plan for them, and yet I think we can imagine there was powerful temptation for them to feel, even as a group, uh, rather isolated in the world, um, powerless, lonely even. Uh, Jesus had just left them. Uh, they couldn't look to him or follow him the same way anymore. There were only 120 people there gathered uh, in the world with all the world in various ways against them. They didn't know exactly what God's plan was, how it would unfold, what it, what it would cost them. And so this event that we know as Pentecost, I want us to see this morning as God's powerfully assuring his church that he was with them intimately, that he was with them powerfully. Uh, to work through them and in them, that he had a plan sovereignly to change the world. They may have had understandable reasons to feel lonely and isolated. You may have understandable reasons to feel lonely and isolated at times. But you ha they had and you have better reasons uh, to know that, that God is with you, and know his powerful presence with you. Uh, and and uh, particularly from this event, this event, the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit as a gift of God's love uh, is an important thing for us to understand and to treasure. So I want us this morning to look at this event as a great assurance of God's presence, of his plan, and of his power uh, for you in the church. So first, <clears throat> as you see on your outline there, uh, Pentecost assures of God's presence. And there's our, there are three signs uh, three things that happen, three signs here, along with uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I want to look at two of those here under this, this first point. So look at verse 1 and 2 again. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. It says, it doesn't say there was actually wind, but a noise like wind, and wind is the, the image that Luke gives us for what is happening here. What could be the significance of a, of a powerful wind, the idea of a powerful wind coming? Uh, well, in, in the Bible, this goes for the Hebrew in Old Testament and for Greek, it works the same way. The same word means breath, wind, and spirit. Uh, they're, they're all the same word. And so this is an appropriate symbol for the Spirit of God coming powerfully on the church. Um, wind and breath of God uh, in the Old Testament were symbols of God's coming or of his powerful presence. Uh, 2 Samuel 22, this uh, prophecy says, Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, the blast of the breath of his nostrils. There's the, the coming of God pictured as a blast of his breath, a powerful wind. Maybe the best example of this is Ezekiel 37, the famous um, vision of the valley of dry bones, right? A bunch of dead, dried out skeletons. And Ezekiel prays to God and um, asks, you know, calls for the four winds. He calls for the breath of God and it, it whooshes in and the bones come together and uh, they, they live. They come to life. And um, it's a, a picture of the life-giving power of God. So this is what <clears throat> has come to the fledgling church. Beloved by God, his life-giving presence and power, symboled in the, the powerful uh, symbol of wind. First, secondly, verse 3, 
And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Uh, Again, note it doesn't say it was fire, but it was like fire. Uh, somehow, whatever that means exactly, uh, but fire is the image that, that Luke brings to our mind. That's also a symbol in the Bible of God's powerful presence. You think of Moses at the burning bush, uh, or the pillar of fire that led the people of God through the wilderness for those years, symboling, symbolizing the, the powerful presence of God leading them. Uh, Ezekiel and his visions of the throne of God uh, describes multiple times something that looks like fire, he says. Uh, Deuteronomy 4 says that God is a consuming fire. And so here, fire, as it were, comes down. It's not to consume them. It's not the fire of God's judgment. That is, come on the Lord Jesus on the cross. But here it's, it's to empower uh, and be with his people. And, and notice that it says it came on each one of them. I think maybe sometimes we have the, we're just picturing the, the 12 apostles here. But there were 120 gathered, as we read in, in chapter 1. And it it very clearly says it came on every one of them. Uh, The gift was for each one of them of the Holy Spirit. Well, secondly, letter B on your outline, a second thing that this assures, this whole scene assures the church of is God's plan. God's plan. I'm sure most of you have been following uh, the the terrible attacks in the Middle East and in Israel, the attack by Hamas that started just, just over a week ago. Um, that was deliberately and symbolically started on a particular date, on, on the anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, 50 years ago uh, to the day. And of course, that intentionality was nefarious and evil, but the point is simply it wasn't random, uh, the day that was chosen. And, and likewise, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in an obviously immensely positive way was not randomly falling on Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Uh, One of the feast days of Israel, one of the seven festivals that God gave to them in the Old Testament. Um, It was also and originally called the Feast of First Fruits. It was a harvest festival, and it came to be called Pentecost, simply because Pentecost means 50th. It came on the 50th day after the Passover Sabbath. So it was a week of weeks, seven weeks plus one day. Uh, so that also means it came on the Lord's Day, as, as John calls it in the New Testament, the day that the, the church, the New Testament church, began to gather and worship. Um, but again, it was a harvest festival, celebrating the very beginning of the harvest for Israel, uh, when they would gather the first of the harvest dedicated to the Lord, and celebrate his provision. It was a, an anticipation of, of the abundance of the rest of the harvest that was to come. And so... It was a very appropriate symbol uh, for the coming of the Holy Spirit, this, this first fruits, as it were, of a great harvest for the kingdom of God, a harvest of souls and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This, this little church, 120 people, was the first fruits uh, of the church that would, would grow around the world. So the very day itself pointed to God's plan uh, to call the nations to himself, to spread the gospel to the whole world, to change the world. And so did the other sign that God gave here. We talked about the first two signs, the sound of wind, the, the tongues like fire. Uh, and the other one is probably the one this scene is most famous for, uh, verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So what is happening here? What is this, what is this sign? What's going on? And what is, what is the point of it? What is, what is uh, God communicating through this? Well, it's clear that what's happening here 
What, what the Holy Spirit empowered these believers to do was to speak in other, other languages of the known world. Um, the, the translation tongues here has maybe become a little bit confusing uh, in, in the modern world because of the modern Pentecostal movement, how the word is used uh, sometimes today. But the word in the Bible simply means a language, uh, another language. And, and still outside of the church context, the word tongue is still used that way at times. We say, you know, if someone uh, is Mexican-American, they're speaking Spanish, we say speaking is mother tongue, right, by which we simply mean language. Um, and that's clearly what's happening in this passage. Verse 5, even though the people are, are there from every nation, verse 6, they're hearing uh, these Christians speak in their language. They're hearing the gospel, verses 7 and 8. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And, and how is it that we hear each, uh, each uh, in our own language uh, to which we were born? They're, they're saying, essentially, how are these, these hicks from the sticks, these Galileans who shouldn't know any other languages and don't speak very well, speaking in my dialect of Greek or, or speaking in Arabic or, or whatever it was, and they're hearing their own language. And verse, verse 9 through 11 lists uh, representative nations there that were in Jerusalem, it, it moves roughly from east to west, this list. Uh, God is sending the gospel out in local dialects, uh, languages of the nations. Uh, verse 12 goes on, And they all continued in amazement and with great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? And so that's what we, the question that we should turn to as well. Uh, surely Luke includes that question that we would ask. What, what does this mean? This is what's happening, but what is, what is the significance of it? Well, in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, Paul says that tongues, this gift of languages, uh, is a sign to unbelievers. Uh, by which he doesn't mean simply that obviously it's a, a gift to other, other nations, other languages to hear the gospel. But Paul means it's a sign to those who refuse to believe. It's a sign to those who wouldn't believe. And the place in the Old Testament where there's a prophecy of the gospel being spoken in other languages, as a sign, is Isaiah 28. I think this is the, maybe the first verse I have uh, on the half sheet in your bulletin. <clears throat> Where God says through Isaiah, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, yet they would not hear. There's the, the refusal to hear, and so God is going to send his word out in, in other tongues, other languages. And the word of the Lord will then to them precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule the people in Jerusalem. So it's directed clearly towards the, the people of Israel who are scoffing at God, refusing to hear God. Um, this is how other languages is a sign to scoffers, to those in Israel who refuse to believe. What did Isaiah predict? There would be a judgment on those in Israel who, who refuse to hear the Lord. That, that the gospel would be proclaimed in other languages to other nations. Uh, as Israel sadly rejected her God. And that's, that's precisely appropriate to Jerusalem. The city has just killed the Son of God, the Word of God. Uh, and will continue to reject the gospel. God says, I'm, I'm sending it out uh, to the nations. Um, this is a sign the gospel is, as Jesus promised back in, in chapter 1, verse 8, that it would go out to the remotest parts of the earth. 
Um, so that's, that's a large part of the meaning of the gift of tongues, of languages here. Uh, many have also observed uh, that this is a, a sort of reversal of Babel, of the Tower of Babel. You remember that story where uh, the people of the earth had, had grown more and more prosperous and arrogant, and, and part of their arrogance was building this great tower to uh, make their own name greater and greater, and God came down, as it were, and in judgment confused their languages uh, and, and split them all up. And here is a reversal of that judgment, God gathering the nations uh, in Christ under the gospel. Well, I, I also said that as we go through <clears throat> the book of Acts, we're going to need to stop and, and ask at various times uh, about practices that we read. Is this something that is, is normative for the church today, or is it something that's, that's descriptive of something that was then, that's, that's not normative? Is, are we reading about something that happened in the early church uniquely, or something that we ought to expect uh, and experience or do or something like that today. We asked that of a couple things in chapter 1. I noted that's not always an easy answer to that. Uh, relative to miraculously speaking other, other tongues, other languages, that's obviously a somewhat controversial question uh, in, the, in the modern church. Uh, but I think that question can, can be answered rather clearly and definitively uh, in this case. Uh, again, some churches today, Bible-believing churches, their answer is yes, this is something that we ought to expect as part of the experience of the church uh, today. Uh, our church tradition, and, and really the overwhelming um, vast majority of church history, the answer has been no. Uh, this is a wonderful sign of God's presence and his power for his church, but it, was, it wasn't something that was an ongoing gift. Now, now how would we... How would we address that question? How, why would we say that? Um, I don't have enough time to address this very fully at all this morning, so if my answer is not satisfying to you. That's probably understandable, and I'd be happy to talk about it more. Please ask questions. Um, but I need to mention, just briefly, I need to mention 1 Corinthians 14 uh, in this connection. 1 Corinthians is the only place in the New Testament that really discusses this gift uh, of, of other tongues, of other languages. And it's, it's from that book, particularly that chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, that some modern churches have uh, created the idea of, of speaking in tongues as a sort of ecstatic speech that's not understood, um, uh, and even sort of a, a prayer language between you and God. Um, but what is Paul talking about in, in 1 Corinthians 14? Again, we don't have time to read it. Read it later today. Uh, if you'd like. Um, but Paul addresses the fact there in, in 1 Corinthians that their worship in Corinth, their worship services, were evidently getting a little out of hand with people speaking all kinds of different languages, maybe wanting to show off their, their gift or just speaking in their own languages. And um, it's, it's clear in the context that Paul is addressing the same, the same thing is, happen, is happening in Acts chapter 2. That is, people speaking in known languages. Languages that are understood around the world, um, somewhere else, um, and God gifting people to do that. Uh, but Paul's message there, 1 Corinthians 14, is essentially this. He says it's, it's way better, in the context of a worship service, it's way better just to speak in the language of the people who are there, so that, that every, everyone can understand. Always speak so people can understand you. Um, and then he, he goes on to say, if, if there are some who insist that they have something to share in a different language, a tongue, he says you can allow two or maybe three at the most 
uh, at, to speak if they can translate it or someone else can translate it so that everyone can hear the message. And that's, that's Paul's message in, in chapter 14. He says, otherwise, if, they, if you can't translate it, they ought to keep their mouths shut, is, is what Paul says. Uh, so, now after 1 Corinthians, which is probably the earliest of all the letters in the New Testament, uh, there's, there's not another mention of this gift in the entire New Testament. Um, there's no instruction about it. It doesn't come up in Paul's letters. It doesn't come up in Peter's letters or John's letters. Um, and it simply didn't continue uh, in the history of the church by, by any source uh, in the ancient church. When you come to Augustine, St. Augustine and other church fathers, they come to commenting on these passages. Uh, they're clear that no one in the church in that time or for the last hundreds of years, back to the apostles, uh, had experienced this uh, or had seen it, that it was a, it was a gift of a special period, uh, of the apostolic period, um, for, to confirm the word of God before they had the written word of God. This is before the New Testament was written. Um, so that's, that's, I think, a biblical understanding of this, this gift and that question here. How, how do we get the modern practice of tongues? Well, we'll, we'll study some of this movement in our, our church history class uh, in, in the coming months, but it really all goes back to one man. Uh, Charles Parham uh, was, uh, lived in Topeka, Kansas, and uh, in 1901, he was, he was teaching Bible, I think, or something. 1901, he um, came up with the idea that, that modern Christians now could perhaps speak in some kind of tongues, other languages, by, by the Holy Spirit. And he had a student, a young woman, who uh, started scribbling things on paper and, and saying things that people know, no one understood. And, and Parham declared that it was Chinese. And you can actually Google this. You can, you can see the piece of paper that she wrote on and recognize that it's just, just scribbles. It's not language. Apparently, nobody in Kansas had seen or heard Chinese at that time uh, very much. Um, but anyway, some other students began doing this. And so he, he thought this is the answer for missions. I mean, well-intentioned. He, he actually sent his students to China, Japan, and some other places. And it turns out nobody could understand them anywhere in the world. Uh, they weren't speaking any, any known languages. And so Parham then came up with the idea that, that perhaps Christians could speak in totally unknown languages by the Holy Spirit as a sort of evidence that the Spirit was working in you. Um, and, and from that later developed the idea of a, a sort of prayer language between you and God. Again, not that you understood anything you were saying, but it, was a, it functioned as, as a sort of encouragement to your faith. Um, now, again, that, that interpretation, that application of this in the New Testament is it's not in the New Testament. It's not anywhere in church history um, and, until 1901 uh, in Topeka. But more importantly, it, it, it's a distraction from the main point of, of this sign of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. It's, it's also contrary to Paul's discussion of that gift in, in 1 Corinthians, um, the point of which was a, a gift of languages so that people could hear the gospel in their own language. And is also, again, a warning and a judgment against, against Israelites who were, who were refusing the gospel. It was a powerful sign that God gave at the time to teach and assure the church that the gospel, which had largely in all of history to that point been confined to Israel, focused in Jerusalem, was now being sent out to the nations. Right? It, was, it was a reversal of Babel. It was an explosion of the grace of God to the, to the whole world. 
calling the nations to Jesus as king and savior. And, and that is what has continued through all of church history. That is what continues to be normative today to the praise and glory of God. That's why you and I, uh, here 7,000 miles from Jerusalem, know the gospel in our language. Uh, because that's what God was about to do. That's what this sign was pointing to. Well, that brings us to the third meaning of this event. Then letter C in your outline. Uh, it, was the, uh, it was an assurance to the church of God's power. God's power in and through them. Look at verse 4 again. Where it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want us to think for a moment about what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What was this filling? What was this filling? Well, filling is, is one metaphor that the New Testament uses for this. Probably the more, more common one in the Bible uh, is a pouring out. Uh, that's the other one that's used, a filling or a pouring out. And Peter uses that here in this very chapter, in verse 33, in his sermon that we'll look at next week. Uh, in explaining this, verse 33, he calls it a, a pouring out, a pouring forth uh, of the Spirit. Paul in Titus chapter 3 speaks about God pouring out on us richly the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's the other metaphor that's used. And uh, again, in Peter's explaining sermon that we'll look at next week here, he, he quotes the prophet Joel. Uh, and this is what Elder, Elder Craig read earlier from Joel chapter 2. Um, to show, Peter does, to show this was this is the long-awaited pouring out of the Spirit that, that the Old Testament had promised. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. So a filling up, a pouring out, what, is, what does that mean? The Holy Spirit was, was poured out. Well, to understand that fully, I, I, I want to ask a related question. Which is this, was the Holy Spirit uh, in the church, was the Holy Spirit in believers already before this day? Uh, did the Holy Spirit live, for example, in the disciples before this day? Uh, did the Holy Spirit live in David, in Jacob, in Abraham and Sarah, in any of the Old Testament believers? And the short answer is yes, he did. This is not the coming of the Holy Spirit as if he had not been there in believers and active previously. Uh, David says in the Old Testament, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He's aware of the Spirit in him. Uh, Jesus in John 14, when he's promising the Holy Spirit to the disciples, he says, you know him, as in you know him already, because he dwells with you and will be in you. You, you, you ought to know something of his work already. It wasn't, it wasn't nearly as fully understood. There wasn't this pouring out, again, that we'll come back to yet. Uh, Paul in Romans 8 divides all of humanity in, into two groups. Romans 8, those who live by the flesh and those who live by the Spirit. Right? Those who are born of the flesh, those who are born of the Spirit. Paul says, only one who's indwelt by the Spirit can know and please God at all. Paul says. So can we possibly conclude that the Old Testament believers somehow overcame spiritual deadness on their own without the Holy Spirit? It's, it's biblically impossible, Paul says. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, whether the fruit of the Spirit in you or in, in Paul or in David or in any of the Old Testament believers has always been the fruit of the Spirit. 
It wasn't generated by, by sinful humans on their own previously. So again, this is not the coming of the Holy Spirit for the first time in any sense, but it's a, a filling, a pouring out of the Holy Spirit in a new way. And there, there are comings, there are fillings with the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament, and then again through the book of Acts, as we'll see on, on occasions, on individuals. Uh, in Exodus 35, uh, God pours out his Spirit on the craftsmen who, who decorate and create the temple for that task. Uh, Zechariah in the Old Testament, the Spirit comes on him for him to confront uh, wickedness in prophecy. Uh, David, when he's anointed, the Spirit comes on him for his task as king. And throughout the Bible, the Spirit coming on someone, filling someone, is, is not, not the idea that it wasn't there at all before, but is symbolic of equipping that person for a certain calling or for a certain task. Uh, so it's interesting and important and instructive then that we ask, how does that function in the book of Acts? How does that function in the book of Acts? Well, look at, let's start in our passage here, verse 4. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and what? And what happened? They began speaking with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And again, the, the speaking in tongues is a significant sign here, but it's not the main thing. They were speaking the gospel is the point. Look at verse 11, what was heard. The mighty deeds of God is what these all these people in various languages heard. Certainly that was what Peter went on to preach in the next verses here, to speak about Jesus, the mighty acts of God through Jesus. Uh, verse 4 tells us more about how they were equipped. The last part of that verse says, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And utterance is one, I would suggest, is one of those sort of unfortunate Bibleese words that we don't really know what it means. Uh, we don't really use that word in English too much. Um, in fact, when we do use it in English, I think it has some connotation that's opposite of what, what the, the Greek word here means. Utterance means, I think of someone muttering or something like that more. Uh, but but the, the Greek word here means simply declaring something clearly and boldly, not just uttering something in English, right? Uh, so one, one scholar translates this part of the verse this way, as the Spirit continued giving them ability to speak out in a loud, clear voice. That, that's the nuance of this word. And that in itself was by the power of the Holy Spirit. They, they were putting themselves in danger. You know, they were huddled together in, in, a, in a, their own little room, and suddenly they're proclaiming the gospel of Christ, who was, who was just killed uh, by this city uh, boldly by the Spirit. Uh, look, I, I think I have these verses in your half sheet in, in your bulletin there. Uh, other instances in Acts of someone being filled with the Holy Spirit, what is it for? Chapter 4, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, what? He said to them, rulers of the people and elders, he stands up and to his own hurt proclaims the gospel to those who didn't want to hear it. Uh, later on in that chapter, about the church. When they had prayed, the place they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what? They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's what it was for. Acts 7, uh, verse 55 is about Stephen. Uh, be, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he proclaimed Jesus, and they immediately stoned him and killed him. But he was filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ. Acts 13, when Elymas, the magician, uh, opposed Paul and Barnabas here. Paul confronted him. He commanded him to stop 
opposing the Lord's work. The first half of that verse is, but Paul, who was also, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, he, he spoke about Jesus, proclaimed the gospel. When we ask the book of Acts, what is the filling of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit for, it's speaking boldly about Jesus. That's how it functions. It's not for feeling warm and fuzzy inside first. It's not for babbling in some uh, unearthly language. It's not, it's not for something else personal so much as speaking courageously about Jesus, eager to tell others about him. It's for the spread of the gospel. And Jesus has been building the church in that way ever since. As, as Paul calls it, the foolishness of the gospel has been by the power of the Holy Spirit conquering the world. Millions of people, nations, kings, poor, all kinds of people all over the world. And how did that begin here in Acts? Again, was it, was it because Jesus chose just the most charismatic and, and learned and powerful personalities and leaders in the world that he could find? To lead his movement? No, it's quite the opposite. I mean, think of, think of what we read of the disciples in the Gospels and how often they're acting silly or cowardly. They're confused. Uh, they're selfish. We know they're relatively uneducated, but they had the, and they had the Spirit already at that point. Jesus told them so, but with the Spirit poured out now, the Gospel changed the world through them. Gave them boldness to speak about Jesus. Here's an illustration that has been used uh, for uh, quite a while that I think is helpful um, to understand the difference in the coming of the Holy Spirit before Pentecost and and at and after Pentecost. So in the 1950s, all the way into the early 1970s, in Egypt, in the modern nation of Egypt, they're constructing uh, the Aswan Dam on the Nile River. There's a major... A major hydroelectric uh, project there. Uh, comparing it to the, the Hoover Dam in the United States, for example, it's about half the height, but it's more than 10 times as wide, uh, much, much bigger. Uh, during construction, they were, they were filling the reservoir behind the dam. They, the Nile River continued to flow downstream um, and gave life to you know, many people along the river. Uh, who depended on it, as they always had for travel, for crops, for drinking water, and so on. It, it gave life in a, in a narrow uh, path downstream. But in 1971, when the dam was complete, they sent water rushing down through 12 massive turbines, and it generated suddenly 10 billion kilowatt hours of electricity. Maybe some of the uh, engineering and physics types here can help us understand that better than I can. But at the time, it was enough to light every city in the, in the nation of Egypt all at once. So all of a sudden, a river that was always there, it was, it was blessing a segment of the country in some simple ways, as it always had, uh, suddenly was giving power to the entire country far beyond just the people on the river there. And that's comparable, I think, to the, the Holy Spirit's pouring out this, this metaphor at, the, at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had always been operative among God's people uh, in Israel, uh, but wasn't, wasn't as fully understood and wasn't poured out for, for the spread of the salvation around the world as, as he was at Pentecost. Ten billion kilowatt hours, as you were, were added to the power of the church to take the gospel to the nations, to change the world. Um, 
So I want to close with three points of application of these things. Uh, three points of application. We've looked at uh, this event as an assurance of God's presence and his plan and his power. But first, very simply and briefly, uh, know that God is powerfully present in you. Uh, know the presence of the Spirit in you. Jesus told his disciples, uh, surely very curiously to them, it is to your benefit that I go away. And, and certainly partly he meant because of his ascension as king, but also in sending the Holy Spirit, pouring out the Holy Spirit. Uh, God's people are never alone. We're never without a purpose and calling of eternal significance. Uh, we don't look for continuing evidence of that by a, a strong noise of wind or tongues of fire on our heads or, or speaking in, in different languages. But rather, we see it in, in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit as he's called the nations to himself in the last 2,000 years. His transforming work of you, his comforting work and, and counseling work in you, pointing you to his word and his promises and, and your union with Christ. We see it in the way he's transformed others around us uh, in coming to Christ. Uh, secondly, uh, live out the mark of a spirit-filled church. Live out the mark of a spirit-filled church. Now, there's, there's several things that we could point to as, a mark, as, as marks of a spirit-filled church. I don't want to uh, narrow this down uh, too much. <clears throat> love, for example. Jesus said they will know you by your love as a mark of the church. But in terms of a great emphasis of the book of Acts and our passage here today, a spirit-filled church, again, speaks about Jesus, speaks boldly about him. Uh, the church is equipped and empowered to take the gospel to the nations. Um, we're assured that people of all nations will be conquered by the power of the word and, and called to Jesus. Even, even though we're also assured that those who are opposed will remain. And, and we see that at the very end of our passage here as well. But here's a, here's a huge part of that application as well. It's not up to you as you speak about Jesus. It's not up to you to be clever enough or powerful enough, or convincing enough, or have better tools, or money, or so on, than, than the world, you're simply called to be faithful. Be a faithful vessel of the Holy Spirit. And God is powerfully present in his people, uh, using them in his mission. So speak about Jesus. Uh, when is the last time you spoke about Jesus to someone who doesn't know him? Uh, why do you and I hesitate to do that? In one sense, we have good reasons to be afraid of uh, about doing that at times. In, in a greater sense, we have better reasons eagerly to share the message of Christ through the spirit that we have, the power of salvation, the word. We have better reasons to love instead of be afraid of those who don't know Christ. We have better reasons to fear for them uh, rather than fear the reactions or so on if they don't know the Savior. And thirdly and finally, uh, be filled with the spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Maybe something sounds a little bit off about that application. Um, isn't this something that God does? Don't I already have the Spirit? Well, this theme brings together the, the sovereign grace of God uh, and our responsibility to be who we are in Christ, to live out what we've been given, to use the blessings that God has given to us, and particularly this morning, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And... That command, be filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm simply quoting Paul from Ephesians 5 there, where he says, be filled with the Spirit. 
And in that context, it has to do with singing and, and giving thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, you already have the Spirit if you're in Christ, but you are to be filled with the Spirit. Again, we'll see throughout the book of Acts, Peter will be filled with the Spirit over and over. Um, often in response to prayer, you're to participate in, you're to seek the blessings of the power of the Spirit. Uh, you know, if, I, if your house is burning down, I can hand you a hose. But it won't do any good if you don't turn it on and point it at your house. Right? You're to pray for and be mindful of the Holy Spirit whom you have. Uh, further evidence of, of your blessed responsibility to do that in the New Testament is uh, in Ephesians 4, Paul says that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. And 1 Thessalonians, that you can quench the Holy Spirit. Not in the sense that you have any power over the Holy Spirit at all, but by God's design, uh, you are to be seeking and praying, being filled in that sense, uh, being mindful of the Holy Spirit's work in you. Uh, and it's through that that God uses him in your life. Be filled with the Spirit for love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. Be filled with the Spirit for comfort in His presence with you, His love for you, His forgiveness of you, His plan for you. Be filled with the Spirit for boldly witnessing uh, to the person and work of Christ. So may we be a church that faithfully stewards this incredible gift of the love of God for us. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you uh, again, this morning for your word and for this uh, wonderful and encouraging account of your pouring out your spirit uh, on each one of them, uh, by which we understand that he's been poured out on each one of us. And we simply ask that you would uh, help us to appreciate that gift fully, um, especially in that we would boldly speak uh, of Christ to others as we see so often in the book of Acts. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.